Hi everyone, welcome to our digital boardroom in association with Pyramid Analytics. Um, if I could introduce our host for today's session, Rob Cowell. Rob is the Principal Technologist at Pyramid Analytics and today we'll be discussing analytic evolution and how to drive data engagement in challenging times. Um, so I just wanted to quickly introduce everybody on the call. Um, so we have John Bellchamber, who's the Chief Data Officer at Telefonica. We have Francesco Federico, who's the Executive Director of Digital Marketing and Transformation at JLL. We have Nina Moncton, who's the Head of Data Strategy at AXA. Um, Jamie Merchant, who's the Global Head of Product Transformation at UM Media. Douglas Silverstone, who's Head of Data Analytics and Information Security at Metropolitan Thames Valley Housing. Andrew McQueen, who's the Group Data Protection Officer at John Menzies. Abed Ajaru, who's the Head of Data and Insight at Moneypenny. Crystal Keo Delabar, who's the Head of Privacy at CWT. Chris Gartside, who's the Director of Data Strategy at PepsiCo. Samir Buala, who's the Chief Data Officer at ING France. Rob Dissington, who's the Head of Product, Customer and Service Data at Tesco Stores. Johnny Bentwood, who's the Global Head of Data Analytics at Golin. Adri Pakayasta, who's the Group Head of AI and Digital Risk Analytics at BMP Paribas. Eric Tyree, who's the CTO and Chief Data Scientist at CWT. And Nula Kennedy-Preston, who's the Chief Data Officer at People's Postcode Lottery. Um, and also Steve Cowell, who's the Head of UK and Ireland at Pyramid Analytics. Um, so if I could just ask everyone to mute themselves if they're not talking just to avoid any disturbances um, and obviously we've got the chat box function to ask any questions or feel free to use the raise your hand feature at any time. Um, if you can turn your camera on that would be great and um, can I just advise everyone to put their phones away but obviously if for any reason anyone does need to go on a quick call if you could just let the group know through the chat function so nobody asks you any questions. Um, and it was a great pleasure that I pass you over to Rob. Okay, thank you very much, Paula, and uh, hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, so, just by way of uh, a quick introduction, I'm just gonna I'll, I'll I'll tell you who I am and what I do at Pyramid, um, and I've got a, a a little a little summary, a little overview of where we in Pyramid uh, see the, uh, the the nature of uh, building greater engagement with data and analytics with organizations obviously we talk to a lot of our customers about this um and and i've got kind of uh, our interpretation of their opinions and, and ultimately we're going to be very interested to hear um if, if your experiences align with those and we're looking to understand i think we're all looking to understand uh, each other's experiences in this area um just trying to understand uh, you know difficulties blockers um sort of barriers that we need to overcome so um, just very briefly, and I uh, appreciate Paul has sort of told us uh, very high level who you all are, uh, just very quickly, um, say my name is Rob Cowell. My, my kind of background was in technical and solutions architecture, originally with British Telecom. So I used to look after a lot of the sales and marketing databases and things like call data records and uh, billing databases as well. So some of the real big... Um, databases within BT six, seven years ago. Um, I was with Oracle for five years looking after uh, big data machine learning analytics, so quite a lot of experience with those kind of platforms. But for the last year, I've been with Pyramid Analytics um, as a uh, principal technologist is my, is my uh, title, but essentially I work in pre-sales and solution architecture. And, and I'm really lucky that I get to work with lots of customers in a lot of different verticals with a lot of experiences um, and a lot of levels of, of analytic maturity. So everyone's on a, uh, everyone's on a, a, a different position in their, in their journey. Um, but most of us are kind of on the same journey. And, and what's interesting for us, I think, at Pyramid is looking for where we can help people uh, push data throughout their organization. Um, it, it's generally not very hard to argue the case for the value of, of data. The difficult piece, of course, is always extracting that value and getting it into the right areas of an organization. Um, we typically find there will be uh, you know, certain, uh, certain departments, finance in particular, who are normally pretty savvy with these things, but there can be a lot of people on the periphery um, 
a, a, a very different levels of experience, maybe C-level people, maybe people who work on uh, uh, shop floor, warehousing, um, and they've all got very different, uh, very different requirements for analytics. And there's very different ways that we can get that information to them. So just coming to our sort of title of uh, our conversation for this afternoon about how do we drive data engagement. From a pyramid perspective, I think we, we I, I tend to categorize these into, into four key areas. And, you know, we, we could, I was going to say, we could slice and dice those, uh, those categories in, in any way we want because, hey, we, you know, we're an analytics company. Of course, we could slice and dice them. But the, the, the four main points that I tend to think about uh, when we're talking about driving uh, uptake of, of, of data throughout an organization, uh, user experience, try and think about the, the different types of users within an organization, different levels of experience, um, different levels of, of, of expertise, different, uh, different questions that people are asking. And so we have to work out any analytics with any analytics framework that we're using, um, how we flex that and how we adapt that to make it uh, you know, suitable for, for the end user. The last thing we want to do is give an intimidating experience that, that puts people off interacting with data, but at the same time, we have to have the, uh, the, the ability to, to become complex where that's required, where people are asking complex questions. We want to do that as simply as possible, but we have to be able to flex to be able to do that. We also need to think when we're talking about user experience about how do we get people to share their insights because I think ultimately no matter what uh, what degree of analytics we're doing what visualizations that we produce ultimately it's that human insight and interpretation that's, that's ultimately incredibly valuable it's the most valuable thing that we that we can work with um, and we have to make sure that any frameworks that we're using allow people to, to share that insight and make sure that's available again throughout the organization so that user experience would be the first point I, I personally would uh, talk about um, there's, there's a couple of areas around trust so trust in data no good having wonderful analytics if uh, people don't trust the numbers they don't or they don't understand where the numbers come from doesn't matter what kind of level of analysis that i've done there if i, if I don't if i don't believe the raw data i'm not going to not going to take action against the uh, analysis that's been provided to me so i need to know where my data has come from i need to know how up to date that data is for some people they, they're going to want uh, event data moments after it's been produced many other areas in the organization we much more relaxed about that maybe they, they're quite happy with uh, data that was produced an hour ago or a day ago the important thing is that we can share that information with people we want to make sure we've got a single source of data. The last thing we generally want with, within an organization is multiple people or, or departments having different cuts of the data, perhaps at different grains or taken at different times. That can cause us a lot of problems. Um, and people want to know why they're being shown data and, and also how they should interpret that data. Um, the little sort of subheading of, of our conversation here today was around how have things changed um, or how are things changing in the last couple of months because of the, the coronavirus? Um, and that's actually been a really interesting uh, point, I think, for data visualization. I mean, lots of visualizations around coronavirus, which are not immediately obvious how you should interpret them. They're not necessarily this country is worse than that country. They are perhaps you know, the, the gradient of a line, perhaps uh, suggesting how quickly the virus is spreading. Sometimes we need to give people extra information to help them understand how to interpret the, any visualizations that we're giving them. So that's kind of trust in data. We'd also talk about trust in processes. So if I'm manipulating data, if I'm federating data, how am I doing that? Can I share that information simply with end users? I know we've got a number of people on the call today who work a lot around uh, AI and machine learning. And, and that's a common theme that we see with people. We can produce some, some wonderfully uh, uh, accurate predictive models. I'm not necessarily going to be able, be able to explain to every user how my deep learning models work, how my support vector machine models work, but I should always be able to explain where the data has come from and any manipulation that I performed prior to it going into those models. That's a really always a very useful thing to be able to do. So that's that that level of um, trust in processes. And finally, my kind of my fourth point that we, that we generally talk to people about is how do we how do we prove what we're doing is is successful? So any 
uh, analytic or data strategy is, is going to be a long-term project. I would argue that we're never going to complete it because the market is always changing, the nature of data is always changing. So it's always going to evolve. We need to make sure that there's buy-in within our organization for the work that we're doing because you know, ultimately these things take a long time and they have the potential to be you know, expensive and, and, and to put in a lot of people. They've got tremendous value, but we need to be able to prove that as we're going along. And, and so again, any way that we're working with analytics must have a framework that allows us to measure the, the uptake of the, uh, uh, the, you know, the data analysis. Who, who is using my reports? If, I've, if I'm producing 100 reports and 96 of them are never being used, well, I, I want to know that. And if some of them are really key, again, that, that's very important for me to know, be able to demonstrate the rollout for that. And also that ties in then with security. Who is it who's looking at my reports? Who has access to the data? So these kind of frameworks are also really important to us. So those are kind of the four areas that we tend to see as uh, um, repeat question areas with our customers. And probably in the last couple of months, it's sort of a, maybe the, the questions haven't changed, but perhaps the focus has slightly. We've definitely seen uh, more people asking about uh, collaboration. So uh, analytics ultimately are there to support decisions. So how do we make decisions inclusive when we're not all sitting physically in, in the same place? How do we make sure that, we are, uh, that we're interacting? Um, security is, is very important to people because it, it's, it's harder to control uh, perhaps who has access to data. We're not all necessarily sitting inside the same secure networks. We've got more remote access. And because we've got remote access, we can't necessarily rely on network performance. If I've got billions of rows of data and I want to perform analytics on it, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to pull that down to my laptop. I'm not sitting in an office with a, uh, you know, a desktop linked with, with in very close proximity to the source of my data. So those are kind of areas that people have been asking us, you know, how do we overcome uh, and, and what are the architectures and technologies that we can use in that area. So from my perspective, and that was just to give you a very quick overview of, of key areas. So I'd be really interested to know uh, if, what, if within your organization, it's the same areas and the same concerns that you have. Uh, do you have a different focus and are, is your focus changing because of the you know the ongoing coronavirus situation is that changing what you're doing now and do you think that's likely to be changing the way that you're working in the medium to long term also so we've actually we've got a few questions uh just again just to sort of stimulate a little bit of debate and uh, uh just help us understand where everyone is coming from so i know if paula um if you're able to push those questions out to people and we would just ask people if you could just respond there's five questions here if people could just respond to these for us it just lets us all understand as a group uh you know where we are if anyone if anyone's reading these and thinks that they um <laughs> they're not sure how to interpret them uh please uh, come off mute and ask that's no problem or just send a message in the chat um and when we've got those uh, all collated, we'll just share those out. And then uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, uh, take some feedback and uh, you know, start a conversation amongst ourselves. So I guess, Paula, I don't know if you can see how uh, uh, the, the percentage of completions of these, uh, and how much, how much time we think we said we'd leave it at about two minutes. So I think we've had about 45 seconds so far. There's questions, there's answers coming in now rather that we can see, that's good. So thank you for people who have, uh, who have responded. I should have thought of something entertaining to do for uh, for two minutes while we were doing this. I apologise. Yeah. People are far too busy. Well, yes, everyone's everyone's reading the uh, reading the question. I'm just scrolling down here just so I can see how many responses we've got. I think we've got uh, what do we have here? There's around eight, nine, ten responses. Interesting stuff. Just give it another twenty seconds, and uh, and that that'll uh, that'll be an, an interesting way to start. See if everyone's finished, yeah. Yeah, does that look stable now? I think it does, doesn't it? There we go, polling is closed. So thank you very much everyone who has, uh, who's done that. So what we will do, um, th th those results are on the screen, so we'll, we'll maybe come back and take a look at those in a moment. Maybe I could just start off by asking, um, I've kind of given you a, a high level view of the kind of areas that, that 
the customers that I have been talking to in the last few months, the kind of questions they've been asking, the areas that they're interested in. Can I ask, do, does that resonate with everyone? Does do, do people broadly see those areas as being concerns for them? Um, is, is there something that we haven't talked about, areas that aren't there? Or uh, is, is there a, maybe a, a different focus or a different, uh, a different level of priority that you have? And you may well need to come off mute if, you, uh, if you'd like to make a comment there. I think you got to put data privacy and compliance in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's the sort of, it's the management side if you're going to open up data. And, uh, I mean, even if you solve all those problems, you still need a management layer that's, that's thinking about that and making sure that stuff's being, not just used appropriately, but I think, I think it's implied in something you said earlier, but that people are interpreting data correctly within the context of how they're using it. It's actually be, one of the big problems I see is people take raw data don't quite understand what it represents and then can come up with erroneous conclusions and therefore bad decisions pretty easily. So, so I guess, Eric, there's maybe there's this kind of two points around uh, security. And Well, when you say privacy, do you, do you mean who has who has access to the data or is that more of a, uh, a controlling who, what data is used in analytics in general? Yeah, it was two pieces. One was, was strictly thinking GDPR. So that people are accessing data that's appropriate for what they're trying to do and who they are, I guess, within the organization. You know, and, and other just look at the whole regulatory piece. It's not just DEPR, but the whole regulatory piece around data. And then the second piece was that they're even capable of, of, of using it. And I don't mean that in a technical sense. I mean that they understand what the data means. It can draw the correct conclusions from it. In other words, it can interpret it correctly um, and do something useful with it and have sufficient knowledge of what that data represents to, 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 to be able to execute. And, and do you have do you have experience of, of overcoming those problems, or are those are those issues that you're you're kind of grappling with? Uh, grappling and overcoming. So on the on the you know on the GDPR side, we're, we're, you know we're 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 thinking about that very very carefully, and in, in largely we have you know things in place to be able to manage that. So that's it. But it's something that I think if you're talking about expanding access to data across the company, it's something you have to actively think about and manage for. It's not something that's kind of a I mean, especially if you're in the EU, I mean, you, you, you can't just sort of think of it as a side project. It's going to be front and center of what you're doing. On the um, on interpretation piece, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, the industry that, that I'm in, is it's, the data is, is, is really difficult. Um, it's a travel industry, and, and believe it or not, there's 30 ways of interpreting an airline ticket. And if you don't get that interpretation correctly, your analysis is way off. So there's a, a depth of knowledge required of where data is coming from, what it really means, that that it's a real kind of hump for people to get over to be effective with it. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, we do want to make sure people are able to access it and use it. And so something, you know, that, that we, we try and manage as best we can. But for, I, I find that always the biggest challenge is, is it's not getting data in front of people. It's getting them to understand it actually and be able to work with it in a way without requiring an SME from the data side working with them. You know, often it's the business SME that they need. Um, and I think there's a piece of data analytics, which is that development consultancy piece, that if it's not there, your data isn't terribly useful to people. So it's kind of thinking from a data point of view, who else needs to be in the room um, to make sure people are getting the best value out of it. And, and do you have any uh, approaches that you found are effective uh, to, to enable that? So to be able to share that kind of domain knowledge, is it something that's is formal or? No, I think it's I think it's a nascent problem that people are just starting to realize. I mean, I was talking to somebody about a year ago. He was sending dashboards to business unit leaders, and they realized that nobody understood the content, and that it was and, and it was, it's this kind of view that. So, so what we do, especially with clients now, is we do try and make sure that anything we're sending to them, and it, it's always within a consultative context now because we do feel like we need to sharpen people through it a bit. And even if they're pretty data savvy, pretty business savvy, um, we feel that, that to get the point where you're, you made earlier, ultimately we're doing this for decision making at the end of the day. So they have somebody with them who can help them and interpret it correctly and, and make that right decision. Whether it's on the client side, just making sure some of the client side is doing it, or if it's one of our own people. Um, and we're, we're starting to do that internally as well, where we're being really careful about making sure that what are you doing with this? What's your intention? And do you have the right support that you need, whether that's technical or business? Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not, there's no simple formula for it. It's something where you realize once you really kind of created a data lake, create a lot of access to it and open that whole thing up, 
your biggest nightmare after security and compliance and this, the system running is, you know, are people going to use this thing correctly? And, and um, uh, so there's that kind of piece. And one of the solutions is you, you pre-process it. You know, you start putting stuff into dashboards, you start putting, you know, pre, pre-analyzing it a bit and kind of providing, um, you know, it's operators as a kind of mini, kind of IT department for data where you're, you're talking to, well, what do you really need? And you kind of get data and SME experts to produce it for them. Um, it's it's getting that- the, the vision of anybody being able to access data is harder to achieve, but not because of technical reasons. It's actually harder because of business reasons and getting their inter- interpretation right. But yeah, I mean, it can be overcome. It's just, we, it, it's, it's, it's like cleaning up a very, very overgrown garden. You just have to kind of work at it for a while. Okay, thank you. That, that data literacy piece is a similar, it's intrinsically linked to the trust piece. It's the same, yeah. if you trust the data, you need to understand it. And if yeah. you understand yeah. the data, you're more likely to trust it. And they, they kind of link together, I think. And they, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have the same problem. We put data sets in front of people, they misinterpret it. And then if, if one of my team's not there, they end up spending an hour arguing over what the data means rather than taking decisions based on the data. And, and it, it wastes time. I think one of the things to add to this as well, certainly from my perspective, I mean, uh, Eric, you touched upon that probably fall within my, my own industry within aviation. Um, obviously, the current global pandemic is almost uh, an opportunity for, for more information. And the operational part of the business loves data, but don't necessarily know what they need the data for. Um, still seem to have this what if, and um, it may come in useful at some point. Um, privacy. And data protection as as two concepts because they are definitely two separate things. And privacy is is you know is governed under the European Convention of Human Rights um, under Article Eight. Um, ultimately, um, data protection um, was was introduced or the data protection regulation as we see just to um, try and um, combat the. The right word. Try and combat basically the, the, the evolving uh, industry of, of technology and use of data. Um, so the two is hand in hand. But for me at the moment, one of the big things and one of the big challenges is particularly in airports and the likes, is they're, they're wanting to carry out particular sets of screening. They want to screen, you know, employees. Uh, you know, we have 36,000 people across the globe. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really want to be sharing that with, with everyone, um, both morally, ethically, and even legally. Um, what, what's the purpose of that? So sometimes I think bringing it back down and before sort of running, which a lot of... Um, a lot of ideas within business, businesses tend to do. I mean, we seem to, to be doing X, Y, and Z at the moment. I'm like, well, why wasn't I aware of this? I hope because of COVID. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not an excuse. And so, so I think ultimately, for, sometimes it's actually just getting people to, to go back to, to basic steps and think about what is the purpose of the data in the first place? Why do I need it? Am I going to use it? Because there's no point in gathering all of this information if you're not going to do something with it that's constructive. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think I think of the COVID piece it raises all sorts of interesting. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be able to travel without. At some point, you're going to have to be screened. You're going to have to show the equivalent of immunization passports I and mean, all that stuff. At least for the time being. Um, and I'm not sure the systems out there can cope with that. And yeah. so it's it's. And I think the systems are. I mean, I've I've had a number of debates with with people around you know and um, you know middle seats free and, and, and social distancing and what is an aerosol generated environment in the first place and um, but the other one about um, temperature screening which is completely inaccurate anyway because um, to combat temperature all it has to do is take two paracetamol bef- you know about an hour before they're, they're traveling which um, defeats defeats the purpose. there's a whole series of arguments I'm trying to say from a, a you know how accurate is the information um, that, that you're gathering and what, why, why is it relevant? And given the fact that we see continually changing advice and guidance around COVID, is it reasonable for us to be taking temperatures of our employees and um, potentially passengers? My argument is because I don't want to be responsible for it. So um, I think that's, that, that's one of the big challenges is actually trying to get people to think outside of the linear scope of what they're looking at. Yeah. 
I, there is a slight flip side to that. I mean, I know like with privacy data, I think absolutely what you're saying is correct. I mean, you don't want to touch it unless you have to. <laughs> you know why you're touching it. So there's a flip side of it. You do want to collect stuff because you want to be used for the future. I mean, there is this sort of um, hoarding instinct that's very hard to resist once you get into it and you've got proper daylight structures. But I think, yeah, the purpose of compliance officers is to kind of keep you clean on that. And, um, and if you start holding you know temperature and immunization data on people it's, it's got to be you got to be very careful with it. yes yeah, lawyers are even worse because we're, we're now you know if you, you get some people that look at things from a black letter law perspective and I'm, I'm trying to get people to start thinking about things in more of an ethical manner which is actually quite even new for, for my, my sort of area even though it's one of the areas that you're sort of taught as part of your your training um as, as a lawyer but ultimately it's, it's trying to, to instill that approach um, within, um, within the, the wider business of think about it from the other person's perspective. How would you feel about your data being treated like that? Um, and sometimes actually, oh, yeah, actually, I didn't think of it like that. And that, that sometimes sort of reverse psychology does have a, a huge impact and sometimes actually narrows down the scope because there's no point in getting all this vast amount of information and doing something and then realizing it's actually not fit for a purpose when you've spent a significant amount of time and money and um, pulling it together and especially if there's all sorts of ethical issues attached to it as well yeah no especially if it's like travel because you don't you know you don't want to erroneously stop someone from traveling um and i think the idea of temperature screening i mean normally it's done in an unrecorded way i mean if you've been to asia in the last 10 years i mean you, you just walk through and you're kind of remote i think the idea is if it's showing a fever you know they're going to Pull your side, kind of check you out. But to your point, you know, you right. can mask it. And there was that case of that woman in France who did that, um, who actually had um, uh, COVID, took a bunch of paracetamol, dropped her temperature, got through the French um, customs, yeah. and then bragged about it on social media. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it goes into the to the to the you know personal data bit, and you got to deal with it and. But um, uh, but on the other hand, you can think, you know, I know our clients will want stats on this. They need to understand, well, what is my risk profile across my, my, my employees? And they want to at least see statistics on it. They want to understand, okay, how does it impact my, my, you know, my business planning? How does it impact, you know, my, my uh, safety and security and my duty of care? And there are legitimate reasons for pooling it in, in, in an aggregated way. Um, I think what I worry about is not so much that, it's the process of creating that. And you know, how do you how do you provide, you know, privacy safeguards whilst small armies and analysts are, are hacking through it? And, you know, um, but um, but you know, I think that's the world we live in. I think we're gonna have to do that. I don't think we have a choice, especially in the travel industry. It's gonna come, it's gonna be painful because I don't think the systems will handle it very well. Uh, I mean, we're certainly looking at it realizing some bits are easy, some bits are not so easy. Uh, but then the, the, the compliance piece is going to be, uh, you know, a, a, an issue. And um, um, but I think it's solvable, and I think we're going to have to do it, and we'll just find a way to do it, and we'll get there. <laughs> can I can I ask? Because it's clearly, I mean, there's lots of sort of cultural and ethical considerations which are which are really interesting. But but in in terms then of of the security, uh, you know, you, you could argue, do I, you know, what level, what grain do I need to hold that data? As you say, you could hold that uh, an aggregated level. We could anonymize that data. So we, we're still looking for temperature patterns, perhaps. But just in security in general, I was just glancing down at the questions while people were talking there. And, and see, so most people, most people who answered the questions, 90%, have got more than 10 systems uh, that they're looking after for their, their, as we would kind of expect, you know, but, but, lots of disparate systems to look after for our data but also the number of people said they've got uh kind of single source security solutions for all of those uh, different systems now i don't know because right, i don't unfortunately the the questions don't give me a venn diagram so i don't know <laughs> who's got lots of data and and who's got the uh the, the, the single point security but I, i'm interested in what kind of uh, approaches people use to govern uh, who can see what data essentially so i i, I to me that often comes down to how i'm federating the data if, if i've got a, a federated data layer um if i if, if maybe I, i'm talking about I've got lots of sources in a data lake and by the time that i uh, you know make them available to people to look at i've got come some kind of security layer there or is my analytics providing the federation am i connecting directly to lots of individual systems in which case how, how do i manage uh, you, know, you know who can see what data and what kind of grain can I manage that at is it is it just down to who can see what system or can I manage individuals can see specific data in different systems does anyone 
Can I answer that one, uh, Rob, please? please. So, and it sort of connects into what everybody has been saying too. I am fairly clear, it's something that we're working on right now, but what's needed is a very uh, clearly aligned data governance, data management um, and data strategy plan that encompasses all elements of data within the business. Um, and that touches the data governance piece, touches on what you're asking about data security. It also covers access control, data collection, data processing, data usage, data quality, um, data architecture. And from what I have found from working in the industry I'm in, which is the, the lottery, is that we've had the same challenges that probably everybody here has had. We've got multiple silos of data, which are functional and purpose and still require to exist. Um, but by creating, what, what I, how I went about it is I've created a, a data strategy and data governance council within the wider areas of the business, senior people actually, first of all, to educate them on, on, on governance, but also to start figuring out who would be responsible for aspects of the data governance piece. It's not just uh, uh, lawyers within the compliance department. You've all got a, a role to play, I think, within the business. People just need to understand who's responsible for what. So that's worked for us. But it, it, as going back to the um, joining all the, the pieces of data together into the single source is really important because without doing that within the functional silos, it's, it's hard to see anything because you can't sort of see the, the trees. They have responsibilities for people and people start to understand a bit more about data and what we actually mean by it is something that's starting to work for us to the point that I'm going to be rolling out the data strategy internationally across the international lotteries. So that's just something from my perspective with it. Okay, and, and and with that siloed data, I mean, what 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 is your approach for for bringing that together from an architectural perspective? You know? Yeah. So looking at everything, so I suppose going back to the, the metadata management piece, having particular people responsible for uh, standardization standardization of the data fields. So uh, you know, a particular fields name or variable name within one of these repositories means the same as in another repository. And if it doesn't mean the same, then it should have a different naming convention. Um, and we've addressed the functional silos aspect by introducing a data platform, which has been built in the cloud. And it, it also encompasses um, consent management, actually, um, at the architectural stage. So every time, um, for example, there's a new development within any of our products, all of our products have got data within them. So be it a development, a technical development for a, a project, idea of something that we might want to introduce going forward it's like voice analytics or voice analytics transcribed into text but that is all planned out from the infancy so it's not thought of as what do we do with this stuff after something's produced it's actually um so that's shoehorning so it's more about with everything going forward so we're introducing this metadata management which include includes data dictionaries glossaries etc etc and the platform itself will be the only place that different business units apart from the functional silos who've got a need to access that particular platform but the different business units such as insight data science and um, events whoever will access their information from the data platform and nowhere else that's how we've gone about it okay and i guess that's an, a, a question i suppose for everyone that there, there's can always plan for a strategy for how we'll do something in the future does anyone got any uh, thoughts or insights or experience of of retrofitting that standardization if we say you know field we'd like field names to be consistent across uh uh, you know, across systems, what do you do yeah, I mean, with, with taken not? A very, We've taken a very similar approach to Lula and doing pretty much that same thing. And in that, we've built a business glossary and a data dictionary. So in all the legacy old world systems in housing, we've got terrible systems that are really decrepit. Um, so rather than try and re-engineer those, you integrate into them, you, you suck the data out and do the translation in that data logic layer as well. So we've got an MDM to do that. That's where the data model is. That's where the standardisation is, and those siloed systems are just old world, not not stuff for me to care about. Okay, that's interesting. So, but so you, from your perspective, those old systems they'll, they'll never be bought in line. The system will fade away, and is that Actually, is that the strategy? Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got all the like the data protection, data archiving, and historic side of things. But in terms of using the data to drive the business forward. The old school legacy systems can be decoupled from the business yep. you still got you still got the headache of licensing and all the headache of managing those systems as systems but you're you're decoupling one element of that issue out of it so, so you don't have requirements for uh you know enriching some of the newer systems with data from those legacy systems so there's no not a federation need 
Yeah, but as, as Nudi said, that that is all taken from the central data there, not direct from the source system. So the the challenge gets getting the data out once from those sources, okay. pulling it into the data layer, and then downstream it doesn't matter. So you still have the headache of getting it out and doing the work front end up up there, but it's just you only do it once. We we have a similar we have a similar issue with Tesco as well because I mean we're a hundred and one year old company and I swear some of our systems are a hundred and one years old um so you know it, it's and and we have this habit of building a new system which is great but not exactly closing off the old one so it's still just kind of peters along peters along and it's still there and it has a couple of fields that apparently are crucial for 15 reports um so we've just kind of got to find a way so that's we're taking a similar approach which is we've got a data lake and what we've done is we've broken up into domains if you will of different aspects of the business um, and then we've assigned data stewards for those domains so they're in charge of the metadata because that gets on to Eric's point of making sure that if we make our metadata as clear and concise and hopefully as English as we possibly can then what it means is then other people can actually look at that table and understand exactly what it is and how it can help them to do stuff um, but by assigning that to the data steward it means that they can make sure that that's up to date and it's it's a way of hopefully making it a little bit more uh, you know approachable for some people because not everybody knows sql um but also in the same breath not everybody wants a tableau dashboard or a microstrategy dashboard what they want is to actually get their hands dirty on the data and try and play and slice and dice so that's one of the big things we've been working on but one of the things I've learned in my career with Tesco and with the other companies I've worked for, it's really, really hard to get people who own source systems to change their system. So um, if you've got a company that's willing to go the MDM route, that can be awesome because sometimes you can say, well, sorry, but this is the MDM, it's going to push it out. But other ways is, well, no, 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 this is going to be the master that we have. What we'll have is an ID that can basically get to that master so that then you can do all your consolidation and you can do all of your reporting and everything that you need to do but it means then you've got less of an effort in dealing with those old systems because the dream is eventually they will die and they'll go off and that'll be fine but it's not going to kill your entire history and what i'm trying to do as well is focus on the systems that we've got that are running that are crucial today and that's the data we need, first of all. Then, depending on how far back we need to go back in history for our analytics and our data science, that's when you start looking at these legacy data systems. But it's a long slog, and it's why I have no hair, basically. So, so does anybody have uh, an... an uh, the concept of federating data and having building data lakes, I think is, I mean, it, it, it's, it's nothing at all new. And I think we don't talk to very few customers who aren't on that journey, but I don't think I've spoken to anyone who's there. So for people who are still migrating systems to a, a data lake type architecture or a consolidated model, have you got any solutions for where you, you need to federate that data now? I've got a system that, that, that isn't federated, I, I do need to report from it, but I need to report from it and more modern systems. Are, are there any uh, are there any ways around that? Or are there any approaches that people use, or, or or is it just something that we struggle to do? For me, it's identifying the key data parts that you need. That's that's the big thing. Um, I'm trying to work closely with our architect team to actually build out a proper model that does that i mean in some ways it, it's funny because we've got a myriad of data points with tesco but the reality is we sell carrots for a living so you know realistically it should come down to some fairly fundamental things there's there's a transaction that happens there's there's a basket there's a product there's a store there's hopefully a person you know and and as a result then what you can do is you can come up with a more generic <coughs> model that then you're fueling and you identify those. And that gets onto the interesting part of where I've seen GDPR affect us. <clears throat> For the last 10 years or so, everybody was saying that storage is cheap. So as a result, everybody went data nuts. They just got every single data point they could, just bring it in. We'll have it. I have no use for it yet, but at some point I'll need it. 
and I'll bring it in and I'll bring it in and I'll bring it in. GDPR has kind of said, no, 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 you kind of have to have a need for that data. So, you know, so it's getting people to start thinking about that first. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of funny because I lived in the States for about nine years. And when I was moving from the States, um, we did this big declutter. And one of the things that we, I had, I had this box about yay big, full of power supplies. I have absolutely no idea what the actual systems they worked on were. There was probably cameras and, and drives and God knows what else, but it was full of these things. And I had been paranoid about losing these power supplies because one day I'll need them. And they sat around for literally nine years gradually growing more and more and more until eventually I just chucked the whole lot because I didn't need them anymore. And that's kind of what a lot of our data is in some ways. We're bringing all this stuff because we think that we're going to have a use for it at some point. But if we haven't thought about that use in five years of bringing it in, then really is it going to be useful? And that's, that's the bit that I think GDPR was trying to help is actually say, look, actually have a reason for it. Now we're lucky with Tesco because everybody has to eat so the reality is we make a decision that this is what we want to start tracking from today we can start getting a whole bunch of information and we're going to keep getting those data points coming back coming back when i worked for Symantec back in the day we had one shot every year because it was a subscription-based service so that becomes really hard with the when it's quick transactions like we're working with then it's a lot easier for me to have that argument of look this data is useless because you haven't tracked it for five years but if this is really important now we start tracking it from now and that's what we start doing it and making sure those systems are in place to make it a lot faster you're not waiting for a year for this to be able to be start tracking it's literally from two three sprints down the road and then you've got it but from from your point then you, you, until you've got an idea of, uh, uh, until you've got a requirement, you're not persisting d data points. You're, you're, but, but you feel that you can very quickly start that's, to record that's, that's when someone comes up with the idea. That's the. Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get to a point where it is very quick to do that when a new data point comes. Because the thing is, realistically, everybody that's trying to build a data lake, or they will try and build, bring in everything. But if they bring in everything, then we're going to hit the same problem that we've had forever. And you're going to be, what is it, drowning in data, starved for knowledge, I think is the term. And that's exactly what we're going to have. So the reality is to try and shorten that time from, we know now that this is the kind of stuff we need to get, or you know what, actually, I do want to bring this in, I can run a quick analysis on it and see if this is useful or it isn't useful. And then if it isn't, then great, okay, it's out, it's gone. And that's why we're, that's what we're trying to start to use our playpens for is doing that. So then it becomes a viable option. Because the reality is, no one person knows everything. Well, apart from my wife, but you know, but it's, it's, you've got to be in a position to accept that somebody else is going to come in and ask you for something that you, you wouldn't have even thought about. So we've got to be in a position where we can actually bring it. I guess, Rob, the one advantage you've got is, is that with your customers, you, they are coming to you yeah. weekly, if not multiple times a week. So yeah. even if you find the holy grail of data that you yeah. don't have right now, you can very quickly build up a coverage and knowledge of that data Yes. in the space of a couple of months that will cover a good 60 to 80 percent of your base without too much hassle um now yes and, and then everyone, right. everyone then wants a year on year comparison of it which you have to say man you're gonna have to wait but you can very quickly build up that knowledge and that kind of uh, understanding quite quickly and that's the joys of grocery retail right yeah i mean that's that's been a big advantage i must admit but um even so, I'm still answering the same data questions I was answering when I was with Symantec, because, and Symantec was a yearly thing. It's, it's just everybody wants all of the data all of the time. Um, so it's, it's being able to have a, a moderately lucid conversation with them saying, look, okay, I'm not going to bring everything in because if I do, you're not going to know what it is we've got because it's just going to be too much it's a bit like and you guys are way too young for this but the first time i was introduced to the internet back in 1996 somebody told me the entire world's information is at your fingertips go for it and 
<laughs> I think I spent the first month looking up South Park quotes because there was nothing, I didn't know how to use it. And that's exactly the problem that we find with this is being able to have some structure. But you're right, I'm in a, I'm in a privileged position because of the fact that I know that we're going to get that data regularly and we're going to get it coming. But there is still seasonal things to take into account. Christmas is huge for us. So we have to factor that in. And anytime I chat with the data scientists, they demand that we have seven years of data. So, you know, <laughs> so that, that, that becomes the new battles that I have to have. Just, so, to add on, just to add on that, Rob, one of that, that's quite interesting because I, I have similar conversations about retention and everyone just seems to have this magic number of seven years and, and then, and then, and then I start challenging it, and then like start to falter a little bit. Um, but interestingly, just around that, the other thing that um, you know we're talking about the use of data analytics, and you know, and um, you need to have the the right people, the right technology. But also, I think the security aspect is really important. And one of the things under Article Thirty Two in the GDPR, it states that um, considering state of the art, and and I, I've used this analogy before because I quite like cars. But I mean, if I had um, several million pounds and I can afford a McLaren F1 vehicle, um, I mean, it would be tremendous. It would be an incredible car for me to own. But if I haven't had the, the appropriate training to be able to drive the thing, I'm going to stall it. Um, if I don't have the appropriate access to the people to be able to fix the vehicle if something goes wrong, then it's going to be no use. So state-of-the-art to, to that, that degree might not be necessary because I don't have the skills and I don't have the expertise to support it. So it might be that it's a little bit more sort of prudent for me to buy a Rolls-Royce instead. Um, <laughs> a little bit more practical. It's good to aim low. A little bit more um, commercially viable. And I think that's one of the, the key aspects. And I try and bring this to light because certainly when I'm in a lot of contract negotiations with customers and so forth, and um, there's these sort of, you know, massive checklists of all these things that they expect you to do. And I'm like, but, you know, we're, we're not going to do that because it doesn't fit in with our model. And we, you know, we just simply are not going to reinvent our, our own wheel. Um, and they, they'll use the, well, state of the art. I'm like, yeah, but state of the art is very subjective. And I think that's one of the things that needs to be taken into consideration. Oh, very much so. No, no, it's, I completely agree. It was, it was funny, actually, because um, everybody touts in Tesco the GDPR within Tesco, the GDPR portability tool that we built, which quite frankly is amazing. And, and I feel proud of the fact that we did it. And what we did was we went out and we built this tool that enabled any one of our club card customers to log on, um, send a request, and it would automatically go off, pull all of their transactions, pull it into a JSON file and send it out to them. All, all automatic, all within the time period. Excellent. Sounds amazing. However, and this is the big however, Nobody really needs it. <laughs> the reality of the situation is, I think we probably get maybe a couple of thousand requests uh, uh, every month or so. It's not massive. It really isn't. It's one of the most amazing tools we've ever built that hardly anybody uses. But we did it because we were super worried about this fact. And that gets to that state of the art thing. We, I think part of it, we got caught up in the, was it? <laughs> Uh, it's the uh, Jeff Goldblum quote. We spent so much time wondering if we could do something, we didn't think about whether we should. You know? And the reality of the situation is we built this amazing thing. And I personally, I want to start almost marketing it as a differentiator for our customers because it is a really cool thing for customers to have all of that data to them. But the point is we spent so much time on the state of the art when in reality we could have probably saved ourselves a lot of stress, a lot of very, very late nights in yeah. building something a lot more low key that still performed the function or hell, we actually told our customer service team, right, you know what, we're going to give you an extra five staff and they're just going to sit there and take calls all week and yeah. they'll do it themselves. Yeah. Sometimes think, low tech works. Yeah, and I yeah. think my build on Andrew's point about state of the art is we've got to also remember to come back to Rob's point about the end user is that the vast majority of the time the end user neither wants or could cope with the six decimal point version of the answer you give. End of the day, a lot of the time, they just want the yes, no, or do, do not uh, view on the world. Um, yeah. And bearing that in mind um, is a massive advantage for both saving the quality of your hairline as well as the quality of your sanity as well as kind of also removing a lot of the... Um, 
opaqueness as to what people should be doing with the end result. Um, and I think that's one of the key traps that if you just let the data scientists run wild, they will always fall into, of course, you need the six decimal point uh, uh, version of this answer. Whereas the reality is that's where they also need a little bit of policing, for want of a better word, to say, look, come on, we just need to know do or do not, or you know, to what scale do we need to be concerned about this rather than that level of accuracy. And I think that, to come back to one of your, the first questions you gave, Rob, about where do you put in that kind of um, level of thinking and security is kind of one of those things to think about. I think the reality is you have to think about security at all levels. Because frankly, if you, if you dumb down the data too much for the analysts to look at, then you'll get the classic scenario of crap in, crap out, right? So you need to make sure that they have as good a data as you can give them within what is sensible. Um, you know, you still don't want to be giving them everybody's email addresses and all that sort of stuff because there's just good common sense that says, and laws that say we shouldn't be doing that. But then, you know, it then comes down to, okay, so they need a certain level of access to get the data to do their job and do it well. But then the end users in terms of the reports you give them, they need a different level of kind of data aggregation, data clarity, data kind of um, detail to allow them to go and do what their job is, which comes us neatly back to where you started this all, which is, actually the most important thing we can do is have a really good understanding of what the end user is trying to do and how we can influence that decision to actually make sure we're putting things back in their hands in a format that means that they can quickly and cleanly and clearly understand what the data is telling them rather than the 50 like minutia levels of detail that we could tell them yeah i think that's a really good point thanks i've just i i uh, just just because uh, unfortunately we, we, we're kind of fast running out of time um there, there was one other area i just wanted to bring up if we've uh, you know just in the last few minutes and again just one of the questions that we were asking around um around data latency um and how quickly we can start to perform analytics after an event has occurred and and, and everybody you know 100 of people who have, who have responded say that's either a a uh, a current concern or a concern that we know they're going to need to address and i guess we've talked as well about uh about data lakes and people who are who are bringing data into single platforms and consolidating that data there must be a lot of data there um what, what are people's approaches they're taking to make sure that uh we can get performant responses to questions that's being asked of that data when there's a huge amount of it are, are there any concerns around the frameworks or the platforms do you need to move data around uh, are you ending up with copies of data because you need to put it in a, a different format perhaps a different way of persisting that data to ask certain questions are there are there any of those issues that you're seeing yeah we get it in spades because data represents a state of being in a travel process and everyone wants what's going on now, what's going on now, where is this person now, what are they doing now, where's the booking? So you're calling, it's a real problem for us, because on one hand, you don't want to do this, because whatever I tell them, by the time they've looked at it, it's out of date. On the other hand, they want to, you know, being able to show stuff real time is an important market requirement, so we have to do it. Um, and it's, it's a real challenge, and I think that's kind of where, you know, I think if you're going to develop stuff like that, that's where automation tools can be really interesting because it takes some of the cost out and you're having to constantly mess around with this stuff. But it goes back to quality of data and whether you, you know, people are going to believe in it. Because what happens is you give them something that says, okay, here's information saying on someone's travel itinerary before they book, before they've left, they could change it, they could rebook it. They might rebook it and not tell us. We might not even know that they've changed something. And so you get questions and doubts about quality of data because whatever you showed them is out of date and they, they can't see the latest thing that's happened. So it's um, in the travel space, it's a problem, uh, but it's also a, a key requirement that you have to be able to deliver to. Um, so that goes back to this quality of data thing where the more real time the data is in travel, the dirtier it tends to be just because people are constantly changing and there's multiple systems out there that may update at different speeds and you're bringing it all together. So you've got the big federation problem as well. And then you're trying to get things synchronized in time, which also creates a lot of challenges. And um, so, I, you know, for us, it's a big deal. But it's also something that you know we we find commercial edge on as well, just simply being able to do it at all. Um, but it's a headache because you get all clients that complain. They want it, then they complain about it. And you try and just get it to work better. But um, um, I think providing that demand for timely data everywhere I've ever worked has always been paramount. And, um, and then you've got to wrestle with quality and cost to be able to deliver it. Mm. But doesn't 
that get back to what Rob was saying before, which is what are the clients actually trying to do? I mean, don't get me wrong. Every single person I've ever spoken to, especially when I work with marketing, they all want real time. They scream for it every yeah. single time. But the reality is if I gave them real time data, there's absolutely nothing they could do with it anyway. The closest, the closest they could get to real time would be maybe um, a hyper relevant marketing campaign with a push notification while you're in store. But we're not in any position to even do anything close to that. And from a travel perspective, I completely agree that you, you want to know all of those different facets. Do, do you have a bunch of customers that literally change just before they walk out the door? Do you have them updating and so on? But that would be all the analysis piece. It's, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what the clients would then think they can do to change that behavior, and that's what they want, yeah, to then to, need that real time. Yeah, they want two things. They want to intercept travel and stop it, because a travel manager's job is to stop you from traveling. <laughs> um, their other job is safety and security. Um, and um, so they want to be able to know real time where people are and what, what the current bookings are. Um, but you're right. I mean, we spend a lot of time doing exactly what you just said. Why do you want this? What do you really want to do? Is it really achievable? Are your downstream systems even capable of managing this stuff? How often do you think you need it? What's the business case? And um, uh, three quarters of the time we can talk them out of it because they do realize they don't really know. But there are some use cases like the ones I just said where it is. Yeah, I guess, Eric, what you can also do is you can just play the classic money talks piece, right? Yes, Which yes. is I get your business cases, but truly is the value of those business cases yes. um, greater than the value it's going to take for setting up these processes and getting yeah. things going. And for yeah. the vast majority of the time, the answer is always no. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And, and Rob, you're exactly right. I completely agree with you, which is a lot of the time, lower latency of data, there is no actions that actually benefit this. It is more either an ego-driven thing or uh, a kind of ill-thought-through process, that, 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 especially kind of within your world. There are very few things where having yes, like last seconds data will make a jot of difference to what's going on. In fact, you could probably almost put a kind of a good day's weight on something because not many people come back in in the space of a day. I mean, that being said, there are we're getting some new cases now, um, especially with the um, was it we're in three thousand four hundred stores all over the country. Um, from a maintenance perspective, then that's that could be an interesting element for the real time. But then it turns into an edge case. So then the investment that you make is on that edge case. Instead of having to make your entire infrastructure ready for real time, you focus on these couple of events, these things that you need. So then it becomes a much more sound investment. And that's, that's been the, um, the, the conversations I've been having with the guys about that, is trying to get them to change their, their way of thinking. Because, you know, once somebody says real time, they think the whole system needs to be real time. It's like, eh, not so much. I don't change address that often, you know, <laughs> that you don't need to know the second I've moved address. Hey, everyone, I just got to say thank you very much. Um, I, I, we're about three minutes from the end. Um, we probably haven't got time for, or I don't want to take us down any more questions. Um, I know that, well, I know that because I can see him. Uh, Steve Cowell, who's the, uh, the head of UK and Ireland for, for Pyramid, is on the call as well. I mentioned it because he's my boss and I have to be nice to him. And uh, I'd wonder if he just wanted to, uh, to, to wrap up. You know, I'm not often nice to him. But uh, uh, Steve, I just wondered if you wanted to, uh, just, just to say a few words. Uh, we've already got about 90 seconds, two minutes at the end. And you're on mute. No, you're still on mute, Steve. <laughs> oh, there we go. Get used to technology one day. Uh, no, I think just listening to this has been fascinating with some of the feedback and the conversation. Um, I, from a real point of view, when you listen to some of the key topics that came out of this about user engagement, trust in data, timeliness of data, how can you get the right information to the right people in the right time, I would definitely agree that over, I'm a BI guy all my career, and I think everyone has talked about doing things like real time, it's taken, you know, there are less instances of where that's been a useful topic. So I'd agree with a lot of the comments that were made here. There was a bunch of other things when I listened to as well. There are, and trying not to make this an unadulterated sales pitch, but a lot of the topics that we've been talking about from a pyramid point of view, we do address uh, in a technology layer some of the problems that have been discussed. Obviously, there are lots of vendors out talking about, you know, they can all do the same kinds of things. However, there's some differences with where Pyramid um, will work with some of the data and some of the topics I've been talking about here. Things like 
leaving data where it is in place analytics, making things a bit faster. Um, you know, things like just the comment about the um, Internet of Things, maintenance on equipment in stores, pulling all of that sort of stuff together in near real time. There are things we can do there to do predictive analytics kind of, uh, of work. So lots of specific use cases that I think um, we can deal with at a technology level, things like user engagement, data privacy, security, governance, um, centralization, all of those things. There are um, some things that we'd love to talk to you about afterwards. Um, and then just giving people a view of the truth, what's really going on across multiple different systems. So I think looking at the some of the, the questions in the poll that intrigued me, um, were particularly question three, how many different data sources do you need to manage an organization? You know, look at that, over 10 at 90% response rate. So trying to pull all of that information together is clearly very complicated. Um, there are things that we can talk about there and certainly link into the GDPR statements that people talk about, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just I guess just looking at the time, we're bang on the hour, so I wanted to thank you all for attendance. Um, and if, uh, Paula, if you wanted to wrap up, I think you had some next steps and stuff as well. So thank you for yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming along and getting involved. Um, we will be following up with you after this session. Um, so just look out for our emails. Um, but, yeah, just a massive thank you. It was lovely to virtually see you all. Yeah. And, I'll, um, Andrew, thank you for um, picking up on the, uh, the motor racing car thing. I've got a very similar story that I tend to use a lot, all to do with Lewis Hamilton. And if you're ever a customer, we do an event at Mercedes-Benz World. We'll give you some driver training. Oh, well, I'll, I'll remember that. Given that I own a Mercedes, I'll probably take you up on that. Oh, he's <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so um, maybe we'll just invite you all to it. And next time we can actually run a proper in, an event where everyone turns up. That would be an interesting one, a, a boardroom at a driving in a Mercedes. Yep. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Post-COVID post activity. So, uh, <laughs> all right, thanks a lot for your time, everybody. Thanks, thanks everyone. everyone. Cheers, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.